Hello, Politics Plus Media 101 listeners. Today's show is going to be John and myself discussing the GOP primary prospects for Nikki Haley, who recently, about two weeks ago now, announced her launch for the presidential nomination for the Republican Party. While a lot of political commentators are saying that this election for the GOP side is a foregone conclusion between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, and it's going to be a steel cage match, and one of them will definitely come out on top, we think that that's maybe not the most adroit analysis based on recent history even. The top candidate doesn't always come out. If, if everybody remembers on the GOP side in 2016, Jeb Bush was the prohibitive favorite. Not only that, he had, I think, over $100 million raised and he was not able to break through at all. There's been other times in history on the GOP side. I remember Herman Cain, Ben Carson were at one point favorites in the primary. So it's important for us to kind of go through all of the prominent candidates that announce and give you our takes on their background, on why they're running, and their potential prospects. Justin, when you say that Governor Haley is the most recent prominent candidate to announce their candidacy, it sounds as though you are making a swipe at Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, Don't forget about the other candidate that has announced more recently than Haley, his candidacy for the GOP nomination. You've just been saying, Justin, about how we don't want to count anybody out. I'm not even going to say that gentleman's name. He reminds me of the Andrew Yang of the GOP, except he's expressly running for the constituency of the hedge fund managers. So I I don't think that he really deserves consideration or mention. Well, the comparison to Andrew Yang is also one that I was thinking about when I was assessing this gentleman's chances. And I think that the Andrew Yang scenario is perhaps a good case for us paying a little bit of attention to this guy. Because what Andrew Yang did that was so strange was managed to make his way into a presidential debate, despite having absolutely no profile or credibility as a candidate, and ended up taking up a little bit more oxygen in the national news media than he probably deserved. And that's a trick that I think we could definitely see repeated by this gentleman. But back to the point that you were making about Governor Haley, I do take your point that not anyone can win a presidential election. Certainly Yang uh, couldn't, and this gentleman, Vivek, probably not either. But candidates that we can judge as being at least somewhat credible have had a history of surprising under certain circumstances. And two of the names that come to mind when you raise that are two people who ended up not only winning their nominations, but ascending to the presidency. And that's Jimmy Carter, and Bill Clinton. Those were two candidates who entered the Democratic primaries in 1976 and in 1992, not as the favorites, but ended up surprising people and making their way to the top of the pile. And what do those two gentlemen have in common is that they were both governors of small or mid-sized states in the southeast of the US. And that's something that they have in common with who else? Well, Governor Nikki Haley, formerly the governor of South Carolina. So perhaps the precedent that she would like to follow is not only that of Donald Trump in 2016, but in fact, that of two Democratic presidents who took the exact same sort of path from the governor's mansion and the former Confederacy to the White House. 
I sometimes get caught into the trap of, oh, it's definitely going to be DeSantis and Trump. And and you're actually the person that pushes me back from that. You're saying, well, we don't have a crystal ball. Things aren't set in stone. And when listening to Nikki Haley's announcement speech, going through researching her background, and just putting it into the context of the current GOP, for better or worse, the party is shifting, right? This was the party of Donald Trump. And then we saw the absolute horrible performance in the 2022 midterms, where there's somewhat of a schism. The establishment folks kind of want to move on. They don't want to run these Blake Masters, xenophobic, racist candidates and highlight them as the party platform, where these candidates don't want to go away. You can imagine that Blake Masters and Kerry Lake and all these folks are going to be on the ballot again, and Trump is on the ballot again. So is the electorate with Trump and DeSantis and that type of candidate? Or is it with maybe the seas will part and there'll be an opportunity for somebody like Nikki Haley, who wants to become the first Asian and woman president to take the job in our nation's history? Yes, yes. And something that I've always said is that, like you suggested, we don't really know what's going to happen. Front runners usually win. If we look at precedent, the front runner usually does come out on top, but they don't always And that's enough for us to have some doubt and skepticism about the outcome, because there really are very few presidential elections. If if you're trying to do data samples, you often need to have thousands of cases to look at. And if we're looking at presidential elections in the United States, we have far fewer. And I've noticed that people often make comparisons when they're looking ahead, but they very rarely compare things in hindsight, because people recognize that each election cycle sets new precedent. And this election cycle is going to set more new precedent. And it's very possible that front runners will emerge victorious. But there's enough reason for us to be doubtful that that might happen, that we should refrain from making any predictions that are too bold. Uh, Like you said, one of the cases that Governor Haley wants to make is that she can expand the GOP electorate beyond where it's been the last few cycles. And in doing, in making that case, I should say, she has emphasized some characteristics about her biography and her demographic representation. And that's that she's younger than other candidates. She is a woman and she is Asian American. Uh, I wonder if her age is really a differentiator considering who some of the other front runners in the field might be. Certainly, Nikki Haley is far younger than Donald Trump. However, she is not younger than Ron DeSantis, who is the other front runner in the field. Ron DeSantis, I think, is only 44 years old, and I think Nikki Haley is about 51. So they're of similar ages, but her age is not a differentiator when she's being compared to the other GOP favorite. So it's hard to really look at that as a case for her against DeSantis, even it might be uh, of her against Trump. Um, in regard to the other characteristics that she brings to the field that are unique. Uh, She has, in her recent commentary, emphasized her Asian heritage appropriately. One thing that I've noticed in some of the response to her candidacy is what I think a very unfortunate reactionary response from many progressives or liberals or Democrats that I've noticed on Twitter and elsewhere on the internet. And I've noticed that there have been race-based attacks on Nikki Haley that are not only ugly, but are actually factually incorrect. 
Um, there's a narrative out there among some uh, liberals, I suppose, um, if they can use that word to describe themselves when they're making these kinds of statements, that are suggesting that Nikki Haley has somehow hidden her heritage or lied about her heritage early in her career. One trope that I keep on encountering is that she changed her name or is hiding her real name. And this is not only an ugly thing to allege, but it's actually factually wrong. Nikki Haley is using her real name. Nikki Haley is using the name that she has used her entire life, which is on her passport, her middle name, but has always been used as her given name, Nikki, which is in the correct spelling that it's used, actually a Punjabi name itself. And then her surname is her actual real married name. There's no subterfuge around her name. If she was a white woman, they wouldn't care what her name was, right? I can't imagine these same attacks uh, being made on her if her skin color was different. And as a voter myself, having worked in politics, I really don't care what name somebody goes by as long as they aren't doing the George Santos thing where they're flagrantly creating a new persona. Um, so it's just, I, I think it's trivial. I think it's disgusting. I think that people need to take a look in the mirror. And it's especially off-putting when these folks that are doing this are folks that also tend to be super sanctimonious. And they say, oh, look at my side. My side doesn't do these type of things. And then they're out there being racist. Ulysses S. Grant, the U.S. president, did not want his luggage to say H-U-G on it when he went to West Point. Hug. So he started going by Ulysses S. Grant, U.S. Grant. Now, there's someone who actually changed their name for political or social reasons. And we don't attempt to criticize him for doing this. We look at it as a charming anecdote. Nikki Haley has not changed her name, and there's no reason to make a story about it at all. I've also seen, I think, what is perhaps even worse are attacks on the fact that she converted to Christianity rather than Sikhism, which was the religion that her parents and grandparents had. And I think that this is perhaps an even uglier instinct for people to attack her for converting to another religion as if it's a betrayal of her heritage. People should appropriately recognize the instinct to make this attack as being something that is right-wing and intolerant. I don't remember ever before hearing cries of apostasy being treated as being liberal or progressive. Um, People in the United States have a freedom to choose the faith of their choosing and commitment. And under no circumstances should anybody attack anyone on that basis. I noticed in the last election cycle, attacks on the candidate for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, Mehmet Oz, that had sometimes this unfortunate religious or national element to them that was intolerant. I saw ads that played on television that were targeting Dr. Oz because he was Turkish and really on that basis. And I hope that liberals and progressives will recognize that even if they believe that intolerant antagonism is more a common thread on the right of the political spectrum, there needs to be much more consciousness and vigilance against this instinct in their own house. And it is not impossible for people on the center or left of the political spectrum to fall into these habits. And it's something that absolutely should be called out whenever it's observed and shunned.
And I think that generally speaking, just looking at the Bernie bros and their history back way back, now we're talking 2016 of sexism, of all the claims against them, uh, that was, I think, largely stamped out in 2020. So hopefully folks will wake up and there will be a little bit of a course correction. But back to why uh, Nikki Haley's background is so impressive to me and also a reason why maybe it's not a foregone conclusion that Trump and DeSantis win. I I think it starts with the fact that she has accomplished a ton. And in accomplishing these things, she's always been the relative underdog, right? She ran for a state house seat in South Carolina, accomplished a great upset. She ran, then ran for governor a few years later, six, seven years later, uh, and she accomplished another major upset without much name recognition. Things weren't always going the right way on the campaign for her, but I think that largely speaking, her tenacity, her will, her ability to be charming, her eloquence as a speaker all helped her overcome these outside expectations come up up during these elections and ultimately win. So, so John, I do think that she is an interesting candidate considering we have the changing GOP electorate. We have a field of primary candidates that's not set. And her history is to overcome something that many would view as insurmountable challenges. There was an excellent article that was written by the author Tim Alberta and published in Politico, I think about a year ago, two years ago. Uh, two years ago. And in this article, I think Mr. Alberta gave kind of the comprehensive and definitive account of Nikki Haley's career thus far. And it follows a lot of the threads that you just referenced there, Justin. It describes how during her upbringing, no one ever expected that she was going to get involved in politics at all. And it was not clear that she had much in the way of political convictions or interest. Uh, But that just like you said, she surprisingly forged a very successful path through South Carolina's politics. And in doing so, she often facilitated between different wings of the Republican Party and different sets of political alliances within the you know, group of figures that make up the Republican Party in that state. And I think that some of the threads that we've noticed in recounting this whole narrative are things that we can observe in recent years after she's gone beyond South Carolina. The first of which is that it's not really clear if she has any core political convictions at all, whether uh, she's really driven by any particular set of values or any particular policy aims. Um, And throughout her career, that's kind of been observed as she's switched between the different wings of the GOP and these different political alliances. The other thing is that she does have a habit of forging connections with figures and then sort of abandoning them, discarding them, throwing them under the bus. I think that uh, someone uh, made of stronger stuff than me might use the term betrayal to describe how she had uh, handled many of her past political relationships. And that's something that we're kind of observing again now, given the way that she has gone back and forth on her own characterization of her relationship and attitude towards Donald Trump, who has been her most recent key political benefactor. We need to unpack what ambition is in a politician, and then also what is gaining new information and changing your mind on an issue. 
Uh, so first off, Nikki Haley is unequivocally very ambitious woman. Nothing wrong with that. Actually, I want all of my politicians, especially president, to be extremely ambitious, to be extremely self-confident. If you look at the way she has evolved on certain issues, it's very clear that she is getting no new information that should change her outlook on the substance of an issue. But on some of these major issues, she is changing based on her calculations and her view of the political landscape. Uh, So in this Tim Alberta article, and after January 6th, she came out rather forcefully, as forcefully as she had since joining the Trump administration, condemning him for January 6th. She ends up announcing and she's kind of flip-flopped again on Donald Trump and she's taken a more milk toast, a more toned down approach. She's toned everything down because the only thing that changed isn't Donald Trump. The only thing that changed is where her attacks fit into her political calculations. Justin, when you talk about her facilitation on issues, the first one that comes to mind to me is on the issue that really initially got her on the national radar, which was around the Confederate flag. So the Confederate flag, it should be said clearly, is the flag of an an army and a political movement that fought a war against the United States. And it fought a war against the United States for the purpose of preserving the institution of slavery in the American South. The flag obviously is recognized almost universally as a symbol of slavery, sedition, and anti-Americanism. But unfortunately, there is a very small contingent of the U.S. population that has um, an, an alternative version of history that's based on uh, what is sometimes referred to as the lost cause myth. Nikki Haley made her way onto the national stage kind of initially because of a decision that she made to remove the Confederate flag from the State House of South Carolina. and. This got her quite a bit of acclaim around the country. It came initially in the wake of a terror attack on a church in Charleston, South Carolina, when a gentleman named Dylan Roof went in and killed many of the prisoners at that church. He was uh, committed to the, this imagery of, of the Confederate flag. I just wanted to point out, and it's important in, in the history of everything, this church was a historical church that was also a black church. The parishioners welcomed him into the church with open arms, and then he opened up his gunfire holding this flag. So Nikki Haley, at the time, responded to it by advocating for the removal of this image from places of prominence in the South Carolina government. This was entirely appropriate and obviously far overdue. Um, And we all thought highly of her for making this decision. But years later, Nikki Haley started speaking a very different tune about the topic to a different audience. And I'm thinking in particular of comments that she made during an interview with Glenn Beck in the year 2019, after she had become enmeshed in the world of Trump. Here is this guy that comes out with his manifesto holding the Confederate flag and had just hijacked everything that people thought of. We don't have hateful people in South Carolina. There's always the small minority that's always going to be there. But, you know, people saw it as service and sacrifice and heritage. And, but once he did that, there there was no way to overcome it. And the national media came in 
in droves. They wanted to define what happened. They wanted to make this about racism. They wanted to make it about gun control. They wanted to make it about mm-hmm. death penalty. And I really pushed off the national media and said there will be a time and place where we talk about this, but it is not now. We're going to get through the funerals. And what she said about the Confederate flag when talking to Mr. Beck was that the Confederate flag was an image of service, sacrifice, and heritage. Uh, People in the national media wanted to make the flag about racism. And... I found this quite disappointing because Nikki Haley, who already recognized correctly that the Confederate flag was indeed a symbol of hate, seemed as though when speaking to an audience that she thought could benefit her politically, started describing the flag otherwise and embracing these lost cause myths that have been a shame on uh, some parts of the American South. And What I find to be so revealing about this instance is that a person who cannot tell the truth about some basic moral questions like this one, when it's already pretty well demonstrated that they are aware of the truth and can recognize it, makes you wonder how this person could then effectively serve as a leader for the country, not only on moral issues for the domestic population but also in their ability to stand up for America's values on the global stage. It's pretty difficult to imagine how someone who is too afraid to tell the truth to a radio host about a major moral issue could possibly stand up next to American adversaries like Russia and its leadership or the leadership of the PRC. I remember that we observed this a bit with Marco Rubio. When Marco Rubio was embracing the rationale behind what was called the growth and opportunity report, the the autopsy as it was characterized after the 2012 election, which recommended that for Republicans to succeed, they would have to shift on the immigration issue and become more open to new immigration. Marco Rubio was pursuing um, an initiative in the U.S. Senate that would liberalize American immigration policy. But once there was a backlash politically to this idea inside the Republican Party base, he abandoned it and in in fact voted against his own proposal. And it really exposed Mr. Rubio as someone who lacked the capacity and ability to lead. And I think that that's kind of what we saw with Haley in this instance. Yeah. And I think it also not only leadership qualities, it throws into question her judgment, right? I agree with you, John. She recognizes the truth. I think Naturally, based on her actions, she's also against uh, flying the Confederate flag on the in the state house for rather obvious reasons. I think to all of our listeners, it's quite offensive to a lot of Americans. Um, but if we go back to the setting in 2015, it really is analogous to Marco Rubio and the Growth and Opportunity Report because we have to remember this is before Trump. She did this before Trump was on the scene. Everybody uh, felt that the tea. A lot of folks had felt that the Tea Party had kind of crested. Their power was on the decline. And heading into 2016, as we mentioned earlier, Jeb Bush Bush was the prohibitive favorite to come out and be the Republican nominee and likely beat Hillary Clinton. Many people thought uh, that would mean that it would be a softer, gentler actually compassionate Republican Party that tried to govern for all uh, rather than take out political vendettas against groups and minorities that you don't agree with. 
So she went out there. She did the right thing in a moment where the national spotlight was on her state. And I remember this. I was sitting in a Tea Party arch conservative office debating with one of our my colleagues who was from South Carolina. And we were debating about this, the, the flag because it was a big issue for months, right? Uh, or at least weeks. And um, he would say, oh, well, they're never going to remove it. It shouldn't be removed. This is silly. It's the heritage. And, and I would obviously argue it's racism and treasonous. Um, and we'd go back and forth, we'd go back and forth. And then when she made this decision, I could mention, oh, well, conservative darling Nikki Haley agrees with me and it would shut him up. And that is what I remember from that moment. And I'm like, damn, this woman's pretty cool. I thought, man, she's really sticking on her convictions. And this flip flop shows a lack of uh, moral clarity and leadership. I do think that that's it was by far her defining moment, but the way that she's handled it afterwards, trying to use it to cover up some maybe political weaknesses in the Republican primary uh, is is gross, unbecoming, but also a liability. Saying that Mr. Roof hijacked the Confederate flag and that it was otherwise a symbol of heritage and service, not hateful. I mean, it's remarkable, isn't it, Justin? And another thing that it reveals, I think, is her lack of faith and trust in her own voters. And this, I think, is pretty important. Other people who have done well politically in the southern states have not felt the need to embrace these kinds of conspiracy theories or alternative interpretations of these shameful parts of history. Uh, Just like we mentioned earlier in this discussion, Bill Clinton and, and Jimmy Carter were very politically successful in the South, becoming governors and also winning many of the Southern states in their presidential elections. Mitt Romney, a Republican who ran for president recently, won almost every state in the U.S. South except for Florida. And I don't recall any of these figures having to say any of these sorts of things about the Confederacy to win over those voters. It's not necessary. You can run as a Republican or a Democrat and win votes in the South without uh, bowing down to what you see as the worst impulses of Southern voters. It's possible to have more trust in the voters to hear the truth and recognize the truth about history. But instead, uh, Mrs. Haley seems to believe that in order to win the support of these people, it's necessary to cater to their worst possible instincts. And it shows just such a lack of faith and trust in really the American people that I think is potentially disqualifying. Well, John, there's a famous saying, half measures availed us nothing. And this really is a half measure for Nikki Haley. She can't go back to be governor and force the legislature or use her political capital uh, in the legislature to put the flag back up. So this kind of lukewarm statement, again, it's a lack of judgment on on my, the way that I view it is is it's a lack of judgment and moral cowardice. Uh, for her to make this statement because the voters that really do love the Confederate flag are never going to forgive her. That That's not going to happen. And she'll get crucified for it on the debate stage, right? There are plenty of folks like President Trump who will drape himself in the Confederate flag like many of his supporters did on January 6th when they stormed the Capitol. Instead of saying, I did this, I believe in it, I'm a political leader, I'm a former governor, I'm a former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, I can shape the conversation. 
I'm going to go out there and I'm going to actually be proud of what I did and run on this and create my own lane in the primary. She doesn't believe that that's possible. So uh, in a way, it's obviously you can, everybody, John, you can tell I'm disgusted by it. But in a way, I think that she has maybe understands where the Republican primary electorate is. I, I don't think that a candidate running unequivocally against the Confederate flag really has a chance to to win in the 2024 primary. So it's it's both very sad, it's very enraging, and it is also a good lens into the prism that she views the electorate that she will be trying to get to vote for her. Well, I think that most candidates in this Republican primary are going to avoid making any commentary about the Confederate flag because it's usually not necessary. It's usually a, a clear implication of running for the presidency of the United States that you support the United States rather than uh, enemies of the United States or, or any other country uh, or would-be country or sedition or secession movement. Um, but um, I think that doing the wrong thing uh, for the wrong reasons is bad enough when you get some kind of gain out of it and doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons and getting no gain out of it is really rather sad. And I think that that's where Mrs. Haley uh, might find herself when, if she goes further down this road, because I do not think that many Americans have sympathetic feelings towards the Confederate flag. And I think that that even goes for Republican primary voters. And I think it even goes for people in Southern states in the United States I've recalled uh, candidates like Corey Stewart, who ran for the governorship, I believe it was, in uh, Virginia, thinking that although he was himself a transplant from the north of the United States, uh, he believed that emphasizing these issues around the Confederacy was going to be helpful as he ran as a candidate in the south. And he found that instead it backfired quite strongly because just like we said when we were talking about Clinton and Carter and Romney and others that have had political success in the South. The South today, um, I'm not sure that there is a majority constituency for sedition and confederacy. And like I said, if she believes that that's politically necessary, she's probably thinking more poorly of, of her own would-be voters than is even actually politically necessary. Well, she's going to get asked the question about it from a moderator on the debate stage if she stays in the race that long. And also... I'd be willing to bet President Trump is going to do some derogatory mark towards her uh, about that. And that's kind of just for starters. So it's something that she will definitely have to address. And I think that in a lot of these Southern primaries, uh, with the way that folks are going to campaign on quote unquote wokeism and how they're going to make up their own definition for that as we go along, and they're going to use that to bludgeon their own adversaries over their political heads, I think that this will actually be something that when she's out in public in the debate stage, she will have to count for. Two protesters were killed today, but it was more a day for grieving the 60 killed here yesterday. A baby suffocated by tear gas laid to rest. They draped their flag on the little body. At other funerals, anger and defiance. The Trump administration standing 100% behind Israel amid calls for an investigation of the violence. UN Ambassador Nikki Haley rejecting any suggestion that Israeli troops may have used excessive force. No country in this chamber would act with more restraint than Israel has. Then, as the Palestinian ambassador prepared to speak, Haley walked out. John, we, we can quickly go through her stint as UN ambassador. While I do think the UN is useful, 
the UN ambassador role is to me relatively meaningless. They're not a policy setter. They're out there to kind of hobnob, meet with foreign diplomats and US domestic bigwigs. And she didn't really, I think, accomplish much. So if you want to take away your analysis of her there, uh, the, the only thing I'll add is having served in a state legislature, having served as a one and a half term governor, and then being in a foreign policy position, even though I would argue her accomplishments just aren't there. She was part of the worst foreign policy, one of the worst foreign policy administrations in recent history. I do think that resume, she is qualified and will be one of the most qualified candidates on that stage. I think certainly her qualifications for the presidency are more linked to her service as governor. Her interest in the UN job and her uh, kind of focus on that and a lot of her subsequent kind of media positioning is an attempt to present herself as a well-rounded candidate who has both domestic policy experience, but also foreign policy experience. I think that she has sometimes made a habit of overemphasizing uh, her role at the UN and the importance of that position. This was at a time when the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was being undermined by several people inside the administration, including Jared Kushner, including Mike Pompeo, but also including Nikki Haley, uh, to his chagrin, which he you know, has publicly complained about quite a bit. What I think Nikki Haley did find about the position at the UN was that it was a useful platform for speechifying and grandstanding, and that was something that she did as frequently as possible, and not always in the best interests of the United States. I think that her tenure as the UN ambassador was probably the first time that I was really genuinely embarrassed by our UN ambassador. I know many other people might say John Bolton, who was a controversial former UN ambassador. But even though John Bolton was controversial and often incendiary, he was perhaps a bit more effective than Nikki Haley was. Uh, one thing that John Bolton did in his tenure as UN ambassador was to engineer the election of Ban Ki-moon as UN Secretary General. And that it's hard to see how Haley had any effect that was um, comparable to that. I think that generally she used that position as a launching pad for for further office. And in doing so, uh, perhaps exaggerated its importance. I would challenge many people to name who her successor was in that office. And uh, I, I, I doubt that, that many people would be able to name that person, Kelly Kraft, who was of a significantly lower and perhaps appropriately lower profile. And with that in mind, perhaps uh, consider whether the position that Haley found herself in for that year and change was uh, really as important as she's been later making it out to be. Yeah, John. So I wanted to shift to her announcement speech because it was as fascinating for what it did have in it as well as what it didn't have in it. Look past the failed ideas of the leaders in Washington and find the courage to be part of the solution. Cast off the fear that our best days behind us and join the movement for our country's renewal. See the same America I see and stand for America together with me. I'm more confident than ever that we can make this vision real in our time because that's what I've seen my entire life. 
As a brown girl growing up in a black and white world, I saw the promise of America unfold before me. As the proud wife of a combat veteran, I saw our people's deep love of freedom and the determination to defend it. It was not a speech steeped in culture war, culture warrior language. I think I only heard woke once, and I generally consider that a, a positive thing. That being said, I, I, I heard her focus on her background, which is entirely appropriate for an announcement speech, uh, how she wants to break the glass ceiling. W- one thing that I did find funny, John, is within the span of three sentences, she mentioned she mentioned she's a woman candidate. She doesn't want to use identity politics, but she needs to break the glass ceiling. And I thought that the fact that all of that was packed into maybe two or three sentences is symbolism for Nikki Haley's core political principles. It's all over the place. There's nothing set and defined and that she's going to stick to. Oh, I'm a woman, but I'm not going to use identity politics, but we need to break the glass ceiling. I just, I'd listened to it and I was uh, cracking up. Justin, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. We were talking earlier in the discussion about how both Democrats and Republicans are susceptible to instincts of bigotry and both sides need to be even if they're not equally guilty, equally conscious and vigilant against those instincts. On the reverse side of that is that although the Republican Party often likes to accuse the Democratic Party of being obsessed with identity politics and signaling around identity issues, um, we find that the Republican Party are certainly at least as susceptible to that same instinct as the Democrats. And in some ways, it, it feels like more. Anyone who watched the 2020 GOP convention, I don't think that you could have found a environment, context, event that had more identity politics and material. It, it was really a, an onslaught of identity politics throughout the entire three or four day affair. In the years since, I routinely noticed more and more of this. And I think that although Republicans often complain about the Democrats playing with identity politics, perhaps um, they might want to recognize that they do so all the time as well. Yeah, it was also funny. The way that the stage was set up and the people near the microphones, when there were cheers, you could hear that they were cheers from women. This is one of the core pillars of the campaign. I think other interesting parts of this speech and going with the positive notes that I took away from this speech is she unequivocally came out in support of Taiwan and Ukraine. And I think that that is vitally important. Our last episode was with Congressman Don Bacon, and I've referenced a poll showing that 47% of GOP voters think we're doing too much to support Ukraine. So maybe this is actually one of her, her core principles, that she's not pro-Russian, that she is pro-Ukraine, pro-democracy, uh, and standing up for these things, um, despite maybe the GOP electorate shifting to be against Ukraine, at least in large numbers, if not a majority. Um, so, so that was something that I, I think was important. The other thing that she focused on was age, which you mentioned earlier, uh, and that was that she was young and she wants to create this competency test. So this was one of the only new policies that she promoted in her speech, which I can't imagine it will ever be passed in a law. It may not be constitutional. There are a whole host of issues that are that are problematic with this proposal. To use a word that is, um, you know, a funny word, um, but that was her only new 
policy position in the speech to to kind of uh, go back to the other policy things she mentioned. She mentioned E-Verify. She mentioned school choice. She mentioned thing energy independent. She mentioned things that have been Republican policy platform for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. N- no new ideas. And lastly, uh, aside from everything that I just kind of outlined, she was decrying America in a way that was basically saying we're on the wrong path. Uh, this is terrible. We need to correct the path. And then she said, uh, America has no vision. We need a vision. But she never laid out her vision in the speech. And it was very um, frustrating, uh, not only to hear America degraded like that. I assume that just every every candidate is going to do that to try and unseat the incumbent. She puts her finger on, we don't have a vision, and then doesn't even come close in this speech to defining a vision. So I give her pro marks for not really leaning into the quote unquote wokeism, uh, but I give her demerits for having no vision. I thought you said that she did lean into the wokeism, Justin. No, she didn't. She mentioned it once. Leaning into the attacks on wokeism. <laughs> Rather than, because so she sort of did lean into into the wokeism, didn't she? I guess she did, right? <laughs> it's funny that you talk about perhaps a lack of vision for the direction she'd like to bring the country because it brings to mind what was one of the most entertaining, amusing anecdotes in that Tim Alberta piece that we were talking about before in Politico. And it, that piece described her whole career, really, uh, but including um, her role during the 2016 presidential election when there was a huge field of GOP candidates and many of them were seeking her endorsement as the governor of South Carolina, a key state on the primary calendar. And she met with Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz. She asked Ted Cruz, uh, why do you want to run for president? What would you like to achieve in office? And he said, the number one reason that I'm running for president is because I would like to overturn every single word of Obamacare. Straight out of the stump speech, but (laughs) <laughs> not the most exciting vision for the country or uh, an idea of what kind of legacy this candidate would like to leave behind overturning a, a law that had been passed a few years earlier. I mean, that would be pretty thin gruel as a legacy for a U.S. president. And so after Cruz left the room, according to the story from Tim Alberta, uh, Haley and her team of advisors started laughing at him. And they're saying he can't break out of the prison of his stump speech. He's got no vision and no reason for running. And it's funny looking back on that story because that might really be the position that Haley finds herself in now, isn't it? I mean, it it really doesn't seem like she's got much of an idea about why she wants to run and what she hopes to achieve as president, other than the lines that are written for her by her communication staff. Yeah, and I think that this kind of plays into why she thinks she has a chance. And this is really you—you you see the roadmap by the announcement speech, right? Um, so in 2022, in key elections, and in 2020, almost across the board, there was an erosion of suburban woman support for Republican candidates, largely because of Trump's just disgustingness. Uh, and then the candidates that he endorsed, a lot of them shared uh, in, I don't know, the defects of character, the defects of personality, um, just were horrible people. And it was in a way that was off-putting 
to these suburban women voters. So it makes sense to lean into the glass ceiling, lean into being, um, you know, an Asian American woman, scoop those voters up. Maybe they don't want Donald Trump, who is misogynistic. Maybe they don't want Ron DeSantis. If Trump and uh, DeSantis go head to head and it becomes really ugly and there's a lot of mudslinging, maybe Nikki Haley, who is, uh, she's a solid speaker. She's charismatic in person. And, you know, she's kind of toned down. It wasn't the brimstone and fire that you expect. There was some derogatory remarks about America, but, you know, there was hope sprinkled in. So that kind of, I think the the lack of vision is not really a problem for her. I think that in her own mind, right, maybe not a problem for her. I, I think that the lane that she's trying to stake out is of a statesperson. And maybe this is why she kind of overinflates what the UN ambassadorship is. Although, John, I need to say all politicians inflate their resume, um, not to the levels of George Santos, uh, but they all do it. So I, I would argue that her uh, tone, her demeanor, the words she's using in this speech is to go to your, not your fundamentalist conservatives, not your activist conservatives, um, but your upper middle class, you know, white women in the suburb, uh, your wealthy college educated conservatives and speak to them. She's running on a campaign that's going to return the GOP to normalcy before Trump. That's, that's kind of the lane that I think she's trying to approach and why maybe her and her advisors don't think there needs to be this grand vision of, you know, going to the moon or Mars or, or whatever. The promises for the future of the country and achievements in office are going to be especially important if any of these candidates make their way into a general election. And without that, it's hard to see how any candidate can really be successful, frankly. But in the primary phase, what's most important are differentiators. Uh, and they can sometimes be on particular pieces of policy or these biographical or personality aspects. Um, but differentiators are important because when you're running inside a field of people in your own broad tent, there are going to be a lot of commonalities between the candidates. And if there's going to be a big field of candidates, you need a way to pick one instead of the others. So Justin, I thought that you astutely pointed out that the issue about Ukraine is likely going to be a differentiator inside this GOP primary. And we can see how candidates are positioning themselves differently on the topic. Another issue is the issue around uh, popular entitlement programs, social benefits. And we can see how candidates are already uh, trying to position themselves around that in different ways. But I think that what we're seeing so far is still a reluctance to make some of the other important differentiators more explicit. And we've seen that a number of candidates and potential candidates have been appearing on Sean Hannity's Fox News show and he asks all of them what is actually an excellent question and a useful question for him to be asking them, which is, tell us about areas in which you disagree with Donald Trump. And even though there are plenty of concepts to choose from, so far, most of the candidates and potential candidates that have been put in the hot seat on this question have kind of demurred and have not answered it directly. And that's going to be a big problem. If the candidates want to actually beat Trump in a head-to-head -head race, which they might have to if he's you know, still a supposed candidate by the time we get to the fall and next spring, they're going to need to draw these contrasts and they're going to need to do it explicitly. 
they can try to do it implicitly, like Haley tried to do in the speech, as you described, but it's much more useful for them to do it explicitly. For a candidate to show that they have the ability to lead the country, kind of like we were saying, we were talking about the Confederate flag issue, they need to show that they have the confidence, uh, moral fortitude to speak plainly and and clearly about what they offer that's different from the others. Uh, There was an opportunity for Haley to make this kind of contrast during her speech. She brought on as one of her speakers during the event, the mother of Otto Warmbier, who was a young man from the United States who was imprisoned in North Korea, held as a political prisoner, really, effectively, and died because of head injuries that he took while he was imprisoned. This woman, the mother of Otto, was speaking on behalf of Governor Haley. This is a real opportunity for Haley to draw a contrast, a direct and explicit contrast with Donald Trump. She could say, I've got the mother of Otto here on my side. My opponent in this race has praised the dictator of North Korea, saying that he fell in love with him. I'm here with the family of victims of the brutality of Kim's regime in North Korea. You can see here in this race who sides with Americans and who sides with despots around the world. This would be a very compelling argument for Haley to make to the voters, including GOP primary voters. But we're still seeing this reluctance from Haley to make these explicit contrasts. And that's where I think the leadership is missing. So I'm going to throw in some political analysis here, play devil's advocate, talk it through with you as I try and make up my mind on her strategy, if, if that's all right, John. Well, I will say one thing, Justin, just because you can explain a rationale behind the strategy doesn't <laughs> mean that the rationale is correct. Well, okay, that is, that is true. So the, the, the first question we need to ask is, why is she announcing right now? She's announcing right now to get a news cycle to raise her name recognition when she has the news cycle to herself, and then to really get big donors juiced up. So the folks she was talking to in New York when she was the UN ambassador, folks she was talking to traveling around the country when she had some time off, it's a signal to them to start donating so she can build up a war chest. Um, Now, why would you not want to go outright and begin attacking Trump viciously now so far out in the primary season? Well, because he is the former president, despite not being on Twitter or Facebook or any of that crap, uh, he still does have a big platform. He is significantly more well-known than she is. And if she starts lobbing attacks at him, Trump's going to start attacking her back. And she's very unlikely with the, you know, I don't know what what a small version of a microphone, a megaphone is. Um, She's very unlikely to break through with these attacks and um, substantially alter people's opinion of Trump. But she is likely to get Trump to attack her and have those MAGA supporters, those Tea Party folks, Tucker Carlson on the nightly news go after her. So I'm going to make the argument that politically speaking, Assuming she doesn't want to stake out this very, very anti-anti-Trump lane and be maybe like a Chris Sununu type, uh, that this is the smart thing because she's holding her powder dry. And as the debates start ramping up as the first primary or caucus approaches, I would assume that's when she's going to start to uh, differentiate herself from Trump, the other candidates that are in the race. 
Well, I, I, first, I want to say I'm not sure that Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, I'm not sure that his denunciations of Donald Trump have themselves been too impressive thus far. But I will say in response to your characterization of the Haley strategy here, I think that your description of their rationale is accurate. But I will say that this pattern of thinking has gotten the country in trouble. And it's also gotten the Republican Party and Republican campaigns in trouble. We saw this in 2016. The candidates did not want to attack Trump because they figured that he would somehow fall from favor and instead attacked each other without taking him on directly for much of the primary process. And by the time that they finally turned their targets towards Trump, and the states had already voted. It was already pretty late in the game to try to break his momentum. Throughout Trump's presidency and uh, immediately afterwards, after the attack on the Capitol, Republicans were given many opportunities to finally reject Trump, but they kept on postponing and delaying it, hoping that he would fall from favor on his own without them pushing him in that direction. And it is again and again and again hurt the country, but also hurt the Republican Party. After uh, the attack on the Capitol, Republicans had one of these opportunities to repudiate him, try to take that off ramp and move on from him. Would have been good for the country, but it also would have been good for the Republican Party. We saw how poorly they did, how much they underperformed in the last election because they keep on delaying uh, the necessity of attacking Trump and drawing these kinds of contrasts. And if I understand that you're probably accurately describing the way Haley and her team are thinking, but it, this is not going to work out for them. It's never, it never has before. Waiting for Trump to go away on his own, especially when he's meant to be running against him, it, 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 it hasn't worked so far. And if you really want to show leadership, um, if you really want to show a capacity to lead the country, not just towards primary voters or even general election voters, but in general, this is not the way to do it. <laughs> to be meek and reluctant is not a way to demonstrate that you have what it takes to lead this country. No, no, I, I agree. I think she felt kind of her hand was forced. She needed to jump in early. If she didn't jump in early and she was able to be afforded the opportunity that Ron DeSantis will be and likely jump in late, uh, then maybe she would have had a different launch strategy. Uh, but I, I take I take your point. I think we've kind of very well described the lane she's trying to run in, the lane of the old GOP. I think that she's going to come into some major problems because she's basically, I think, going to get hit on the left and the right. So the MAGA folks that love Trump, the Tea Party folks that maybe love Trump or DeSantis, and Tucker Carlson, and and this is important, for some reason, Tucker Carlson hates Nikki Haley. So once this actually starts to ramp up on the most watched political opinion show on cable news network, Carlson's going to just start savaging her definitely on a weekly basis, uh, maybe maybe even more if she starts to gain traction. So she's not going to outflank anybody the right, and that is the populist right. She's not going to be able to make a name for herself and take the religious conservative lane away from Mike Pence. He owns that lane. that That's his. Um, so she can't out virtue signal him there. So that's another lane that's kind of closed off for her. And if there is any type of remaining anti-Trump GOP lane where candidates that aren't DeSantis may be able to get some votes, uh, she's not going to be able to take that lane, I don't think either, 
because as we all know, she was a Trump appointee and she was a Trump appointee during some pretty awful stuff. Um, so I do see this as an uphill battle. Again, she's looking at this like she's going to be a woman on the stage. She's stately as Trump and DeSantis and everybody else slings this mud. Maybe she can have these sharp invectives like I think it was Elizabeth Warren. She basically shanked Mike Bloomberg on the debate stage and ended his campaign with like one line. I can't remember what that was, John. Yeah, uh, Senator Warren humiliated (laughs) Mayor Bloomberg on the stage. I'm raising that he had tried to pressure a staffer into getting an abortion and all the other, you know, hideous elements of his uh, relationship with women throughout his career. She effectively ended his uh, public media persona tour too. I mean, it's it's hard to tell how he would have done otherwise, but it, it certainly was not helpful. <laughs> uh, but I, I want to respond to this idea of lanes. I think that we can sometimes box our thinking into this structure in a way that is inaccurate and inhibiting. And I want to look to that same primary that you just referred to, the 2020 Democratic primary, as an example. The commentariat were organizing these candidates into these lanes or tracks and saying, uh, well, Biden and Bujaj are, are the moderates or liberals, and then Warren and Sanders are the progressives or, or leftists. But when can- uh, voters were actually polled, they showed that the preferences between Sanders and, and Biden were more transferable. And the preferences between Buttigieg and Warren were more transferable, even though the commentariat had organized them otherwise. And so then there were alternative theories. Well, maybe it's more the beer track, which is the, the, the blue collar style. And that's what connects Sanders and Biden. And then it's the wine track, the, the white collar style that, that connects Warren and Buttigieg. The erudite style. What if it's just really about name recognition? What if people are more familiar with Biden and Sanders and they like them both? And so they're more likely to jump between them that way. We, we can't read the minds of voters, but we do know for a fact that voters do not organize candidates into lanes the way that commentators like to do. They, they really don't do that. To defend myself, what I'm trying to express when I talk about these lanes is the activists in each state. And largely speaking, the activists and the issues they stand for can be put into lanes. Now, whether or not they definitely vote on those lanes is another question, whether or not their outreach and their door knocking and their influence is that great. And again, the endorsements and, and all of this stuff, uh, your, your point stands um, maybe I'm, Hey man, maybe I'm a little over-reliant on, on this lanes analogy, but, but I think there are some, it's the theory shouldn't just be thrown out wholesale. Uh, I think that certain candidates do resonate more with certain folks. The other thing that I just want to say before we kind of conclude this discussion is that you were talking about the power of Tucker Carlson and how that's something that Haley needs to be concerned about as she builds her political strategy. And This reminds me a little bit about conversations that we've had about donors in the post-Citizens United era and conversations we've had about Twitter and how Twitter factors into the political discourse. And that's the observation that I often like to make, which is that sometimes it's not the actual power of any of these stakeholders or institutions or, or networks. It's the perceived power and how that affects candidate behavior. So. The big donors, 
some analysis has shown that in lots of races, the amount of money that's spent on advertising doesn't affect the outcome that directly. However, the candidates believe that it does. And so they have an incentive that's based out of fear of losing that encourages them to cozy up to the big money interests. Twitter. Twitter doesn't have that many users compared to other social networks. Very few of them are politically available. Most of them are already politically committed. And the demographics do not match that of the country at all. But because the discourse on Twitter is obsessed over by the candidates and it affects what they say and what they do, Twitter matters. This is what I'm leading into and observing with Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson has, I don't know how many viewers a night. It's not a big part of the American electorate. It's not even that big a part of the GOP primary electorate, really. But the candidates think that he matters, and they're afraid of being attacked by him. And that changes the way they behave. You know who did not worry about this kind of thinking? Donald Trump in 2016. Fox News in the 2016 primary was quite activated against Trump's candidacy. But Trump wasn't worried about the institutional power of that media network. He had confidence, an unfortunate for the country level of confidence, in his own ability to build a power base of his own. And he disregarded the concern over the way these other institutions were behaving. That's what Haley or anyone who aspires to the power and profile of the U.S. presidency needs to be able to do. They need to show that they're not concerned about what any pundit is going to say about them. You can't be the U.S. president if you think that way. You need to build your own source of power and take on your rivals. And that's what we haven't seen from Haley and many of these others. And just quick correction here. I thought Tucker Carlson had 2 million. He has 3.5 million. And during the 2020 election, it was 4.5 million. So that's not nothing. But I, I your point stands. I think that uh, where this all nets out for me, I think she's by far not the worst candidate out there. I, I generally disagree with a lot of her approach to foreign policy. However, I like the fact that she's willing to, at least right now, put her neck out for Ukraine. I think that that's vital. Um, where I think this all ends up, though, like I said earlier, is I think Nikki Haley is a very viable vice president candidate choice for whoever comes out, especially if it's Donald Trump, maybe even Ron DeSantis. I think that she's going to be viewed as very capable, well-spoken. Um, the attacks on her, you know, I, I don't think they're going to ruin her political career. And also she's going to be viewed as a commodity to try and firm up that suburban white woman voting block. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how much of her strategy is going all in, going guns a-blazing, I'm going to come out uh, of this thing on top, I'm playing to win the game. How much of it is maybe holding back that Elizabeth Warren-style attack to not truly piss off the potential front runner and be able to secure yourself a spot as the vice president? Will she be like Kamala Harris and you know call Trump racist like Harris did to Biden uh, and be fortunate enough to wind up the vice president? I don't think so. So this is just something that I think we all need to watch. I'm not confident on anything, but if I were a betting man, I would bet that whoever is the nominee, if it's a man, will be very likely to pick a female vice presidential candidate. And I think she's in a good position. 
Well, it will be interesting, as you say, to see what happens. And we will be there watching with everyone else.